0: The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then Romans 5, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord.
1: You know, one one letter can make a big difference. As Ben was getting up to give the children's sermon, he mentioned he had this book, uh, Nano Nature. And I was thinking, Nana Nature, and I'm wondering, why does he have a book about grandmothers? But he he clarified that for us all, and I'm grateful. Uh, Also, I'm grateful that uh, this morning in Sunday school class, we... Uh, Brian already struck on much of where we're going to be this morning, and uh, so we'll see how those all dovetail together. If you want to keep your Bibles open to 1 Timothy chapter 1, the 15th verse of that chapter is going to be one we're going to come back and revisit over and over, but we're going to be covering a number of different passages. So um, if you're not uh, directly there, don't worry about it. We'll get to it. Uh, understanding sin. This is one of the other areas that I was asked to speak on in this short breakout before we get back into our regular study of second peter Um, and we want to look at it in three ways Uh, the problem of sin the character of sin and the cure for sin Um, in 1988 there was a book which my dad uh, purchased had me read at the time it was by dr carl menninger a renowned secular psychiatrist and he wrote this best-selling book, Whatever Became of Sin, somewhere Whatever Became of My Slides, should have been my book. Uh, I'll, wait, I'll wait for them to bring them back. Uh, and in it, he argued that the scientific community, uh, including psychologists and psychiatrists, had been abandoning the idea of moral responsibility by trying to locate all sorts of aberrant behaviors in things like genetics and environment. That hasn't stopped. Uh, Following Freud's lead, that guilt is very much at the bottom of most, if not all, mental and emotional distress. Uh, The scientific community sought to eliminate guilt altogether. You see that going on around us all over the place today. And this has been approached two main ways. Two typical ways. Uh, Again, I'm greatly simplifying Freud here, but uh, his main approach was to teach patients that guilt was really just a a social construct. And since guilt is man-made, we simply help people realize that everything they do is natural to them and conditioned upon their upbringing, and so don't feel too guilty about it. You're just acting out in a natural way. And others tried to eliminate guilt for moral responsibility by investing everything in uh, genetics. We're nothing more than highly evolved animals, and therefore our sinful desires are simply part of our genetic makeup. So don't worry about it. Just learn to go with the flow. And this is why there's been so much attention given to the supposed genetic factors in things like uh, drunkenness and homosexuality. If we can find a gene that's to blame, we remove all moral responsibility and we like it when we aren't morally responsible. We want to be able to blame our parents or our grandparents or, or some genetic problem or, or our heritage and say somehow that's, that's why we are the way we are. So if it's all in your genes, moral questions simply cease to exist and isn't that pleasant. But Menager, back in 88, was arguing, as a secular mental health professional, no less, that guilt is real, and responsibility is real, and we feel guilty because we actually sin, and we need some means of forgiveness to be cleansed from our guilt. Uh, To be fair, Freud also had a category for actual guilt, but it was kind of narrow and fuzzy, Um Menninger wasn't a Christian, but he really did understand this truth. And the sad reality today is that even in the church, this medical model of dealing with guilt has crept in more and more and more. And it's a problem for us. So we hear precious little of this little word sin. We don't really like it, or we kind of redefine it, or kind of of, of skirt around it, as though it has... We don't want to deal with sin as something to do with our moral responsibility before God and man. That isn't where we want to go. We want to talk about errors and mistakes and imperfections and brokenness, but not the need to confess our sin, to repent of our sins, which is more than saying I'm sorry for it. I may, in this series, go back and do one just on the biblical notion of repentance. Repentance is never just going to someone and saying I'm sorry repentance is turning around and going the other way. It's saying, I'm not going to countenance my behavior in this direction anymore. I need to change direction and acknowledging the need for that change. But that's, that's some, maybe I will we'll preach that this morning. It's just kind of off. No, I won't. I'll, I'll hold off. But we, we ignore the idea that we need to repent of our sin and to look for the forgiveness ...of real cosmic crimes against God in the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Again, we tend to only think of sins between us. And that God doesn't think very much of sin. So, we think of sin, if we think of sin in today's world... ...most often from the thought process that... ...and and what most often comes to mind, I think, for some of us... ...is just imperfection or error. And don't we hear that all the time. After all, nobody's perfect. As though that's an excuse... Yes, we're all fallen, but we're all so morally responsible for that. So just saying nobody's perfect is not somehow a get-out-of-jail-free card, and we can't let that creep into our theology any more than we can into our psychology. What doesn't strike most of us, and I really do want to redirect our thoughts this morning, is that sin is first and foremost a personal affront to the holy God. When we sin, we sin against Him personally. Not just a, a structure or a set of laws or, or a code of ethics. We sin against Him personally. And when we fail to acknowledge our, our sins before Him, we begin to follow a thought pattern that treats sin lightly. It's not such a big deal. You know, there's that old joke, God likes to forgive, I like to sin, we're a great pair. No, that isn't the way it works. It fails to account for sin being a true personal affront to our Lord and Savior. So even in the church, we can begin to treat sin the way the world does, and some sort of mere legal matter. Let me just get over the the little bump in the road. But sin is, first and foremost, not a legal matter above everything else it is a personal offense to god's holy nature we offend him when we sin personally and that's the issue that needs to be addressed that's the the thing that seems to be off the table for an awful lot of us it might be helpful at this point to work through some definitions, to give you a biblical definition of sin from the biblical descriptions of it, there isn't one verse that pinpoints all of it, but we've got a, a good place where we can start with is First John five, seventeen uh, a, where the quote simply is this: We can, it's we thought we had this fixed, and apparently we don't. Um, all wrongdoing is sin. That's what it says. All wrongdoing is sin. Well, that's a good start. Let me take you secondly. What's that? What's that? Yeah. No. Nope, I'm in the picture part. There it is. Somebody prayed and the miracle has happened. Thank you but now it's not going to go to the next one. Um, The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 24. What is sin? They qualify it this way. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. It's a pretty good one. It's a fairly standard one, and it's, it's a good one throughout the The centuries. Um, There was a man by the name of Martin Bucer who was part of the German Reformation. Bucer was, in fact, kind of a mentor to Calvin. He was a little older than Calvin, and Calvin spent a couple of years um, in uh, a German city with Bucer. Bucer wrote Sin is the scriptural name for our going astray by forsaking the only God who is man's highest good in order to pursue unsubstantial and ruinous phantoms of the good. Let me go back, because that is rich and really good. Sin is the scriptural name for our going astray by forsaking the only God who is man's highest good in order to pursue unsubstantial and ruinous phantoms of good. That is when we sin. We seek the good somewhere other than in God himself. And this is where American religion really gets warped. So what we begin to do is we seek God in order to get the good we perceive that's in the world. I'm going to serve God so he'll get me the husband I want, so he'll get me the wife I want, so he'll get me the job i want and god becomes the means to the end rather than the end himself because we lose the fact that he's the highest good he isn't the means to anything he is the end and when we lose sight of that we turn even christianity into idolatry because that's the essence of an idol something i serve in order to get what i want let me take this one step further um, kind of collating a bunch of these together myself. Sin is any violation of God's will. Because when we think of law, we tend to only think of the Ten Commandments. But God's will is expressed throughout the Bible. So let's go back. Any violation of God's will or of his created order and the corruption that follows because of it. Now we'll substantiate all that as we work through the scriptures here. But this is why to let sin go is to ignore God Himself and to treat Him as though He doesn't matter. As though our slaps to His holy face are inconsequential. As though our denials of who and what He is by failing to display His glory means nothing. And when you make little of sin, you make little of the cross Jesus didn't die for our imperfections, for our our mistakes, our errors. He died for our sin. And and until we recognize that, we make the cross a very small thing. Kind of a, well, why did he go through all that? That Jesus died for nothing after all. Sin is such a little deal, we don't even need to make amends for it when we commit it against him. And that is not the biblical perspective at all. I heard it argued a while back in a conversation with someone that it seems odd that God would bring just all this horrible judgment upon a whole human race simply because someone stole an apple. But of course that thought completely misses the context of the Bible and the original fall itself. The taking of the forbidden fruit in Eden was not in and of itself merely an act of disobedience. It was that, but that that isn't the whole thing. That's the first definition of sin, but it goes beyond that. The real issue is that Adam was trying to dethrone God by eating the forbidden fruit. He was trying to be like God himself. What made Adam's sin and consequently all of ours so heinous is that in them in each and every one of them from the smallest to the greatest we're saying to God you have no right to rule me and i will make myself the rule of right and wrong i'm god for me i displace your authority with my own that's what sin is so don't don't cover it up by just saying oh well it's a minor infraction I disobeyed this little thing or I didn't do this thing. that That's not the idea. The idea is I rob God of his authority to tell me what to do. What's right and what's wrong. The essence of all of our struggles with sin is at that point. I don't want God to rule me. I want to rule me. That's big. This is, this is true even in In our society, as Morgan Freeman put it, when asked about playing God in the movie uh, Bruce Almighty, this is a quote, if I can get to that next one. It's not going. If you'll do that, John. I am God, so it's easy to play him. They say God is in all things, so if God is in me, then I am in God, and therefore I am God, and God doesn't exist without me. We may not all say it that blatantly but that's often really where we are. R.C. Sproul refers to this to sin as cosmic treason. Not just some infraction or error. So that's the the first aspect of sin is that it's located in our acts in, in what we do. But the Bible paints sin as going deeper. The Older theologians used to say, we aren't sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. And that puts the cart in the right relationship to the horse. In other words, we commit sinful acts in opposition to God's laws and the nature with which we were created. But we are also constitutionally sinners as a result of being joined to Adam. So, we have sin as acts of disobedience or neglect, and we have sin as condition. It's our state of being. What the Bible terms iniquity, which is a word that refers to being warped or twisted, distorted. We were made to bear the image of Christ, and, and distortion has come in. And that inner twistedness or warpedness is our condition, which is sin. We're infected with this plague of self-government and and every place it shows itself, it's one more place where we're attempting to remove God from his rightful throne and install ourselves there. Now, the the finer points of this reality we're going to tease out in a few minutes um, and in no better place, and we're going to do this in kind of rapid fire than in the healing miracles of Jesus. I'll show you why those tie together in just a moment. Um, but let me add a third way you know, the Bible speaks of sin and sinners to clarify a common misunderstanding. So we have, number one, our sinful acts. Uh, Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And then our sinful condition, inherited from Adam. That's in uh, Ephesians 2, 3c. And where Paul writes to the Ephesians and says, Before we were saved, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Wasn't just just a uh, 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 something that we had done, but this was part of our nature. And then, thirdly, our sinful status: we are condemned as sinners. First Timothy one, which we had read for us already. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance: that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I'm going to come back and revisit that in a second. But note how Jesus deals with all of these. In salvation, our sinful acts are forgiven. Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. And what does he say that is? The forgiveness of sins. And he deals with our condition. Our condition is impacted, but we'll see that it's not fully dealt with yet. But go back to 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And notice the present tense. Paul doesn't say of whom I was the foremost. He continues to own the fact that he's still a sinner in this regard. At least in terms of his condition. But his status has changed. Gal- Galatians 3.26 for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now some have thought that because our acts have been forgiven and our status has changed from enemies to sons that we no longer identify in any way as sinners. But what they forget is that our condition is not yet fully taken care of. It's not fully changed. That's why we had that portion in 1 Timothy 1.15. What is still needed to deal with our condition is the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15:42 through45. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being and the last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. So true, all believers now already are sons of God and yet we still possess a sinful nature which we must own that causes us to be both saints and sinners at the same time. And denying our sinfulness and condition is still sinners, who com- who then still commit acts of sin, fails to account for the real situation, and that brings confusion. I've had people who will say, I'm a Christian. I no longer consider myself a sinner. Too bad. You are. And the Bible says you are. Yes, you're also a son of God, but you're still a sinner. You're just like Paul, the chief of sinners, among whom I am am chief. Now that brings us back to our main consideration for this morning. What has sin done and what has God done about it in Jesus Christ? So we want to look at the consequences of sin. We've kind of laid out what the problem is. Now let's look at the consequences and why sin is so bad, especially as it regards us. And a survey of Christ's healing miracles helps us immensely here. I think it's really useful. Um, Since all pain and suffering and disorder came into the world because of sin, we can use the healing miracles to give insight into the effects of sin in the soul as well as in the body. And when we take each of those... ...and view it as a type, as a, also a representative. Christ really did these miracles, really healed these people... ...but the healing by itself doesn't do anything. You Remember, you can go to heaven perfectly... ...or you can go to hell perfectly healthy. Perfectly healed. The healing doesn't do anything for the man spiritually... But, ...but there is a spiritual dimension to all this... ...that helps us understand the nature of sin and how he's dealt with it. So when you view each of his healings as a type as another way in which sin impacts us in God's image, as in God's image bearers, it really begins to open the, the fullness of our need for a Savior in graphic reality. In each one is a display of how sin corrupts us in every way. And why then we're in such dire condition. And why we need a Savior who can save us, not only from the guilt of our acts, but from the effects and the mastery of sin in our lives. And one day will deliver us even from the presence of it altogether. So the first one, fever, I'm going to run through these. Um, as you skirt through the, through the Gospels, you're going to see these categories for healings done over and over. The first healing that Jesus does is healing sin, uh, healing fever, uh, which demonstrates to us that sin is constitutional. Uh, we have a good picture of this in Jesus twice healing someone of, of fever. Uh, he heals the nobleman's son in John 4, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law in Mark 1, which tells us you know, Peter's a better man than I am, that he'd be praying that his mother-in-law get well. But that's, that's another story. It shows you I'm still a sinner. Um, but, but what does sin in us do? Fever's a great representative here. First, in both accounts, what it tells us is that sin affects all ages. Both the nobleman's son, as a little boy, and Peter's mother-in-law, as an older woman. And it appears on the surface in greater and lesser degrees. Not all of our sickness shows itself completely on the surface. But secondly, it impacts the whole being, and especially how fever, when it's unchecked, brings on delirium and a loss of reality. Sin infects our thought process so as to no longer perceive reality from God's perspective. It distorts things. It gives us a distorted view of life, of what's important, of God, of truth. Fever is a great way of representing how that delirium takes over and lays us aside. We cannot know God while we are under the unchallenged influence of the fever of sin. But how he interrupts. Secondly, blindness. In Matthew 9, Jesus heals two men of blindness. One man in Mark 8, one born blind in John 9, and then in Mark 10, he heals blind Bartimaeus Um, the repetition is meant for emphasis as we've seen all the way through in the biblical languages Uh, much of this Brian was talking about in the Sunday school class so if you were here for that you're getting a, a building off of that same idea sin robs us of the ability to see truth much like fever but even worse So Jesus can say in John 8 that those who follow him are no longer in darkness, the implication being that those who do not follow him are in darkness. They're blind. They're unable to see the truth. Paul notes in 2 Corinthians 4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. How about leprosy? In Mark 1, you get Jesus healing one man of leprosy. And then in Luke 17, you get him healing ten Men who have leprosy all at once. And leprosy is used throughout the Scripture as a type of sin. A way of understanding sin. That it's, that it's incurable. And that it is fatal. And that it infects each man and all men. As it's communicable. And everywhere in Scripture, leprosy gets represented as defiling the sufferer and making them unclean to God and man. So the Old Testament said, if you were a leper and you were near the city, you had to cover your upper lip and cry out to others, unclean! Don't come near me, you'll catch my disease. And it defiled them so that they couldn't go to the synagogue, they couldn't go to the temple, they couldn't worship. Because it made them unclean before God. This is what sin does, beloved. It separates. It separates us first from God, just like it did in the Garden of Eden. What happened when man fell? He hid. He knew immediately he was separated from God. But then it separated him from from his own wife. Because as soon as God confronts him, he says, oh, hey, hey, the woman you gave me, she's the problem. I've heard that echoed any number of ways. The mother you gave me, the aunt you gave me, the grandmother you gave me, the wife you gave me, the kids you gave me. It's never an excuse. It separates from one another and it separates us from love. What does he try to do? Cover up his own nakedness. Because he's exposed in that moment. And it even separates us from nature itself because in comes the fall and in comes all sorts of mayhem in the created order. We get another insight into sin when we see how Jesus healed paralysis. In Mark 3, he healed the man with the withered hand. And and in Matthew 8, the centurion's son... And then how when he was at home in Mark 2 and, and four friends brought someone who was paralyzed and, and let them down through the roof of Jesus' house. What does paralysis represent? That, that sin completely robs us of capability to serve God in Christ. It's as though we can do nothing. It verifies exactly what we're told in Isaiah 64. where. The prophet writes, we have all become like one who's unclean and all our our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We can't do a thing that pleases God. We're paralyzed from being able to serve Him. That's what sin does. And... Jesus heals of impotence, weakness that overcomes. We see the example of that at the Pool of Bethesda in John 5 where the man was was impotent for 38 years and and couldn't go. He was too weak and he was too lame. And sin doesn't always appear on the surface. But nevertheless, it withers us inwardly. And even though it's unapparent, it may be long-term and because of it, Because of it, just like this man, we can't walk in holiness. Sin disarms us. In Mark 5, Jesus heals the woman with the issue of blood. She had had it for 12 years. And what does that tell us about sin? Sin is internal and it's chronic. And again, it's uncleanness is emphasized in that spot because she is not supposed to be touching anybody when she's in that crowd. And it's humanly incurable. She spent all of her living on doctors, the text says, and was no better. And you can go to all the psychologists and all the psychiatrists you want to go to, but you can't deal with sin that way. Sin can only be cured by Christ. In Luke 14... Jesus heals a man of dropsy. Not a word we use very often in conversation today. It, the medical term today would be edema, swelling. Swelling to the, to the degree that the person is disabled, but especially disfigured. And sin is just that. It is disfiguring. It distorts the image of God we were created in, so that He's no longer recognizable as who He was. That's what our sin does. It it destroys that image so that we don't look like Him anymore. In Mark 7, we see that sin affects hearing and speech as Jesus heals that man in Mark 7 and our, our inability to hear God anymore, as Brian told us this morning, and a complete inability to worship Him in any capacity. We can neither give him the praise that he's due, nor listen to his word with any usefulness. Even injury, which is a result of the fall, man's brutality against man. We see it in Luke 22 when Peter cuts off Malchus's ear and Jesus rushes in to heal that, that man. Man was made brutal in the fall. And inflicts wounds on others both visible and invisible external and internal i watched two documentaries this week one having to do with a cult leader in california a movie made by one of the people who was in that cult for 22 years before he finally realized that this man was an abuser and was destroying lives by his control and manipulation over them and then Followed that up with a tribe that was just found in South America in 2010. A hidden tribe of people that made themselves known for the first time in 2010. And as they came out of the jungle, part of their problem was that we've been hunted. We've been brutalized. We've been killed and we've had to kill in response. And the brutality of mankind to mankind. The bombing in New York City this weekend. Sin makes us brutal to one another. But Christ heals even the effects of that brutality. And then the one that gets the most play in the whole of the New Testament, in the Gospels, if you just survey Matthew alone in Matthew 4, Matthew 7, Matthew 8, 9, 12, 15, and 17, demon possession or demon oppression... Man left to himself outside of Christ is prey to the evil spirits, the fallen angels and the devil himself. So Paul mentions in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, when, again, talking about the believer before his conversion, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And none of us were exempt, he says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then lastly, death itself. Three times Jesus raises someone from the dead during his earthly ministry to show the truest and the worst example, the fullness of what sin has done to us, It has killed us. You go through those and you say, now, this is why we can't take sin lightly in any way. It's treasonous rebellion against God and His right rule, it's manifest destruction of the bodies and souls of those that are made in His image, and it's utter and just condemnation by our holy God. Well then that takes us to the cure. I mean, we've looked at the problem, we've looked at the consequences. But this is where this is where we get the most amazing reality. Let me go back to all those that we just looked at. As we looked at all these examples of what sin is and does, then we think what a great redeemer Christ is and how great this salvation is that the believers are partaker of. In Christ, The delirium of our fever has been lifted that we might know God in truth. In Christ, our blind eyes have been opened and he heals us that we might behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Christ, leprosy, the defiling and and incurable leprosy of our souls is cleansed so that we might have fellowship with God and with God's people. In Christ, the paralysis is removed. We're set free to do the good works that He prepared for us before the foundations of the world to walk in. In Christ, that, that weakness is removed and He empowers us so that we can walk before Him in holiness. In Christ, He overcomes the internal raging infection of, of the issue of blood that makes us unclean in everything we do. In Christ, He He removes the dropsy, the soul dropsy, and begins conforming us once more to the image of His own character that had become so distorted. In Christ, hearing and speech are restored, and we can begin to hear His Word and take it in and understand it and be changed by it, and we can begin to praise Him and bless Him and witness to His goodness and grace to a lost world. In Christ, the injuries of our lives, He grants us a forgiving spirit to heal the wounds that others have inflicted on us. In Christ, the bondage of demonic possession and oppression is broken, and He frees us from the dreadful influence of the world and the devil. In Christ, we're not just helped out. We are raised from the dead To newness of life. He raises us up from the dead as it said in Ephesians 2. Even when we were dead in our trespasses He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Beloved, I don't know if you've thought about what your salvation is in the last little bit but this is what He's done for you. And if you're not a Christian here today let me tell you this is what He will do for you. Run to Him. He doesn't just forgive. He does miraculous things in overturning the wreckage and the bondage of sin in your life. A number of years ago, I had found a a poem, four four lines that I have. I've written it in the flyleaf of every Bible I've ever owned. And then just this week as I was reading some things in John Newton, I found the entire poem from which that that stanza came. Let me read it for you this morning. How lost was my condition till Jesus made me whole. There is but one physician can cure the sin-sick soul. Next door to death he found me and snatched me from the grave to tell to all around me his wondrous power to save the worst of all diseases is light compared with sin on every part it seizes but rages most within tis palsy plague and fever and madness all combined and none but a believer the least relief can find from men great skill professing i thought a cure to gain But this proved more distressing and added to my pain. Some said that nothing ailed me. Some gave me up for loss. Thus every refuge failed me and all my hopes were crossed. At length, this great physician, how matchless is his grace, accepted my petition and undertook my case. First gave me sight to view him For sin my eyes had sealed. Then bid me look unto him. I looked and I was healed. A dying, risen Jesus seen by the eye of faith at once from danger frees us and saves the soul from death. Come then to this physician. His help he'll freely give. He makes no hard condition. Tis only look and live. What a gospel. Believer, I just want you to go back this morning and revel and marvel at what God has done for you. That was your condition. Everything we went through in that survey of the miracles of Jesus, that was your condition before you came to him. And he has reached out and touched you in each one of those. And if you're not a believer here today, that is your condition right now. That is the dire state that you're in. But he calls to you to come to him. Not one, not one in all of the gospel accounts, not once did anyone come to him for healing that he didn't respond. Not one. You say, you don't know the sins I've committed. No, but I know mine. And I tell you, if he can save me, he can save anybody. That was Paul's point in 1 Timothy. I was the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners, and he has saved me. He'll save you too. Let's pray. Father, we look at this survey, and we stand absolutely astounded. How can it be that you can come to us in that defiled and broken condition and love us so as to send your son to pay the penalty for our transgression but then extend your power to not just reverse the effects of sin but overcome them to where we'll stand in glory in resurrected newness that defies our imagination. What a God of grace you are. So I pray that you will fill the hearts of every believer here today with a gratitude that can't be expressed well, but overflows into genuine worship of the highest kind. How often we fail to remember all that you've done for us. And for those here who might not know your saving grace today, will, will you overcome all of their brokenness and bring them to yourself? Will you open the blind eyes and unstop the deaf ears and rebuke that delirium of sin's fever? Will you call them out of the grave like you did Lazarus? And give them new life in in yourself. We plead that today in Jesus' name.